It's good to be back with you. Um, if you're new with us, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we have um, just got back la- late last night um, from, uh, from England. So I was there with the, with the group of our seniors. Uh, I'm also the head of schools over at uh, Bethesda Christian Schools next door. And uh, so spent the time there with some seniors working with kids uh, with the Kelsos. Uh, if you know the Kelsos, um, honestly, incredible ministry going on over there. It actually, Dave and I hung out the whole time together and uh, got to talk a lot about just ministry and life and try to encourage him and everything. But their ministry, they, if you know this or not, have transitioned the last two years uh, to working, kind of doing some church revitalization. And kind of similar to our missionaries in, in Germany, uh, have really have a pretty huge outreach to immigrants uh, who are coming in. The church is, uh, I think there was 30 different nations represented uh, within their church. And, um, and so it was just fantastic to see um, all the kids and young people and just a lot of them from a really, really tough background. Um, I resonate with a lot of little kids' stories and the things that they were living with at their homes, and yet here they were. And our kids did awesome. Um, our seniors that were, were there, loving on those kids, carrying them around, um, working with them with kind of like a VBS thing we had going all week long. Matter of fact, two of the teenagers that are working with our other seniors this week um, were there working with us. They wanted to come every day. And, uh, and when the, our group left, the two girls that were working, two teenagers were like bawling um, in tears and not wanting them to leave. And so it was just really really neat to see uh, kind of our impact we can have over there and what's already going on uh, with one of our missionaries uh, that are already is doing a great work. So with that, uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 12, um, and so we will be working through this. If you're new, we've been working through the, the book of Hebrews. We are getting close to the end now, um, and it, sometimes it feels like the passages get more tougher, don't they? Um, this one's, uh, this one's interesting. So uh, we're going to end chapter 12 today, and then we'll be picking up Easter Sunday, next Sunday. We're going to go back next Sunday to Hebrews 11. If you remember, we skipped uh, Hebrews uh, 11, like 13 through 16, that little section. And we're going to go back, and I saved that for Easter because it has a very, very good resurrection uh, kind of theme to it. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that together next Sunday and then finish up Hebrews 13 for the, the three following weeks after that. So then we'll be done with the book. So let me pray for us. Father... Uh, help, um, help us to God hear what you have to say to us today. Help me to communicate it clearly um, as God you would have it uh, be, be uh, communicated. I pray God that you would open our hearts and our minds, make us pliable, teachable, moldable in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, life is hard. That's kind of been one of the themes that Hebrews has been addressing. Um, the pastor of the, of the church who was writing this letter to the community, they have been suffering under a lot of things. Matter of fact, if you remember back in early in chapter 12, he referenced in the first couple of verses that life was like a race. And the word race there is the Greek word agonizomai, which is where we get our word agony from, right? So he says life is agony. He, just, he owns it, acknowledges it, like it's hard. And it's hard for these folks, and it's hard for us many times. And so he's addressing that and telling them that life is, is hard. It's like a race. It's a marathon. It's a long in race of endurance to keep going. Um, he's told us throughout the book that life is, is like a journey or a race, and it's like going from weariness to rest, from alienation to the presence of God, from isolation to the city of God. And these are all references he's kind of made throughout the book. And he sought to tell us in chapter 11 and 12 to kind of give us perspective, um, give us perspective on our suffering, give us perspective on our pain uh, in this journey by giving us his examples, right? Hebrews 11 was a lot of examples of people who have endured and gone through a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of struggle and suffering, even doubt uh, and difficulty, and how they endured through that, and ultimately given us the person of Jesus as well there in the beginning of chapter 12. 
And the reason he's done this is because uh, the writer understands that, that uh, the expectations set appropriately are most of the battle in our faith. Um, more than half the pain we experience in suffering isn't due to the difficulties that we're facing as much as it is the shock or the confusion or the self-pity that's actually happening to us, right? That's usually our, one of our most difficult things is just getting perspective. If we can get perspective and understand what God is doing in this and understand he's got a hand in this and working through this, then we can handle pain and suffering a lot better. So in chapter 12, uh, he proceeded to tell us that our pain is not meaningless, he talked about God as a father to us. Uh, we are his children. He's working in us uh, to draw us near to himself. So as we end chapter 12, the writer desperately wants his readers to see that Jesus is not only greater than, than death, he's greater than life itself. He wants them to live an unshakable life, a life, though full of pain, has stability, right? Though a life that is shaken has a firm foundation underneath of your feet, the writer knows that they are, they're still shaking, though. He knows that they, they're still reeling from the pain. If you go back and read chapter 10, uh, many of them have been thrown in prison. They had lost their homes. Their families had rejected them for their faith in Christ. Uh, the culture was bearing down on them. They were suffering tremendously. And so he knows they're still reeling from that. Um, all that he has taught them about the value and worth of Jesus and how he's better than life, is, it's still a struggle for them. Uh, they are still scared. They're still unsure. And they're still wavering in the midst of it. And we know what that's like, right? This is why this book is so applicable to us. We're like, yeah, I know, I know what that is like. At times, like them, you may feel like in your pain, you're approaching a God that is just angry with you. Um, you feel like the walls are closing in maybe, that there is no hope. You may feel like God is, is shaking everything and it's just, you're just not going to be able to stand. You're going to fall. You're going to fall over. You're not going to be able to get back up again. You feel God is shaking everything. You feel like God has abandoned you, maybe, turned his back on you based on your circumstances, and yet the writer is pleading with us to give us perspective that that is not what is going on. We may feel, or you may feel like you want to run and hide from God and get away from him in that way, but God is actually gently calling us to come to him, and he'll give us rest. And that's because of Jesus, and because of Jesus, he won't consume you, but but if you're in Christ, he won't consume you. Actually, he will invite you to come near to him, near to you, and feel the pain that you're in. That's why the, the key word in this whole passage that was just read is the word come. And you'll see that referenced many times here. It refers to that word come refers to people's fundamental spiritual approach to God. How, how do they come to God? How do they see God? How do they have perspective of God? Okay? It's what, they, what, they, what do they imagine God to be like? You think about that for yourself right now. You're going to come to God. What does he look like? What, what is it like to be in his presence? What does that mean? What comes up in your imagination as you think about those things? A.W. Tozer, um, in his, uh, his book um, on, on following God, was a great, a great book there. He, he actually talked about that our understanding of God, our perspective of God, or what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So it's important we have that perspective, that proper vision for who he is, who God is in our pain, in our suffering. Eugene Peterson said the following. He said, the work of spirituality is to recognize where we are, the particular circumstances of our lives, to recognize grace and say, do you suppose God wants to be with me in a way that does not involve changing my spouse or getting rid of my spouse or my kids, but in changing me and doing something in my life that maybe I could never experience without this pain and without this suffering? 
Perhaps God has a, has a point in this, right? He's working on you. Maybe it's not those around you. He's actually working on you. So I want you to see God this morning. I want you to, to understand and sense his presence and understand his, his plan and what he's working through in the pain that you're facing. Have a proper vision of him that you may be able to stand firm in the suffering that maybe you're facing now or maybe the, 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 the pain that you're about to face and the suffering that's about to come as well. So we want to build that foundation. And so the writer's going to address them. And here's the beautiful thing. He's going to address them uh, not just like a pastor, but in many ways like a, like a counselor. And you're going to see this is a great kind of pattern we're going to see. The way the writer, now the language may be a little archaic. You may not use this language when you're counseling somebody. But, but his, what he's doing is he's like a good counselor. And he's going to come alongside of them, help give them stability in their pain. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to do three things. He's going to acknowledge how they feel. He's going to tell them the truth. And then he's going to give them hope. And that is a great three-point outline for just helping somebody else, right? Understand, what they're, acknowledge what they're going through, acknowledge what, what they're experiencing, right? Tell them the truth and then give them hope, right? And so that's what we're going to look at today. So number one, God acknowledges how we feel. This is uh, verses 18 through 21. And this is where we get our idea, and this has been throughout Hebrews, the idea of empathizing. We saw this back in Hebrews 4 with Jesus, our high priest, who's able to sympathize with our pain. And so to empathize with someone, to be present with us in pain, for someone just to acknowledge how we feel is powerful. You ever had that happen to you? That in the midst of suffering and pain, someone comes alongside of you, and they just kind of stand with you, and they acknowledge how you feel, and they're there for you. There's something powerful just about their presence, right? Being Walking through that dark time in your life. And so he has acknowledged this throughout the book, the writer has, and he knows uh, that, again, they've been abandoned by friends and family, lost jobs, and others um, have been thrown in prison. He acknowledges back in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 32, he says, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, so they were mocked and made fun of, sometimes being partners with those so treated, so they came alongside others who were being mistreated that way. You had compassion on those in prison, and the idea there is that other people within the church have been taken to prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he has given them examples, he's talked about Jesus, he's given them perspective, told them it's not meaningless, but none of that has been able to, to shake the gut feeling that perhaps God is just not on their side. And that's what they're feeling, right? They're feeling that in the midst of their struggle, that where is God in all this? Perhaps God has abandoned us. Perhaps God has turned his back on us. Perhaps God is out to get us. And so they feel like they're at the bottom of Mount Sinai, looking up, and what they see is darkness and bleakness and thunder and lightning. And the writer says, but that's not what you've come to. That's not the relationship you've entered into. Same God, (laughs) different reception. Okay, so look at verse 18. You have not come, there's our main word there, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of a trumpet, voice whose words made the hearers beg uh, that no further message, message be spoken. This is all taken from Exodus 19 and 20. And if you're familiar with that story, it's where the people of Israel, they had miraculously crossed the Red Sea, and they made their way to the foot of Mount Sinai, kind of the pinnacle of the story, right? You're thinking, this is going to go great. God is going to meet them, visit them. And they had an appointment with God. And when they got there, the people prepared themselves uh, to approach God. They prepared themselves. They washed their clothes. 
Um, you know, they, they got uh, ceremonially cleaned up. I don't know if they trimmed their beards, put on some deodorant. I don't know what they did, but they got cleaned up, got ready. They're ready to approach God. Day one, nothing. Nothing happened. They're just camping out at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Day two, nothing happened. But day three, God approached. <laughs> and it was not what they were expecting, at least not the intensity level that they were expecting. Um, in the story back in Exodus, a thick cloud kind of approached the horizon. It settled on top of Mount Sinai. The sky grew dark. Uh, suddenly, you can imagine the sky just filling up with, with light. Uh, bolts of lightning hit the mountain from every direction. I remember back in, uh, when I was leaving college in New York and traveling and going to college in California, we drove uh, straight across 70 and got to the Rockies about 2 o'clock in the morning. And as we were approaching the Rockies, I don't know if you've ever had this trip before, but I was approaching it, and I'd never been west of the Mississippi in my life, so this is all new to me. We're driving, all of a sudden, there was a thunderstorm around top of the Rockies, and it was, I had to be hundreds of lightning bolts hit the mountain at the same time, and the whole thing just lights up, right? You've been going through these plains of Kansas forever, it feels like, and all of a sudden, this massive mountain full with lightning, and that's, that's what they're experiencing. It's, it's shocking, it's scary. You can imagine the, the thunder, it, it starts to kind of roll all the way down the mountain, down to their feet, down uh, into their chest. Uh, you can literally feel it in their bones. Uh, add to that, the, it says here, the deafening sounds of trumpets blasting from the top of the mountain, presumably by angels. Smoke billowed down the mountain as well. No doubt the, no doubt the people were, were covering their mouth, maybe covering their face with their shawls, trying to, uh, you know, others coughing, you know, the smoke coming down. It's a very uh, dangerous situation. The response of the people is understandable, right? You know what they do? They run and hide. <laughs> they run and hide in their, in their tents. They're petrified uh, to come out. Moses then convinces them to take maybe little baby steps to the base of the mountain, and they, and they slowly make their way closer. And you can imagine kind of families kind of clinging to one another. Friends are kind of huddled up. Others, I don't know, <laughs> slouched behind sheep, you know, taking shelter, using them as a shield in case God sends a lightning bolt at them. I mean, they're just terrified, And here's what it says in verse uh, Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Can you imagine being there for that experience? I mean, if you're standing at the base of that mountain, you you can barely keep your balance from just the ground shaking. The sky is dark from cloud cover so that you see nothing one second and you see everything the next second from the lightning lighting it up. And the trumpets get louder, the ground shakes even more, you're clinging to one another, right? Moses in kind of a, a sheepish, sheepish voice kind of calls for God and it gets quiet. And like straight out of the Wizard of Oz, you got this blaring voice that comes down from the mountain, right? And everybody's just terrified and scared. One thing became very clear to everyone at that moment. God was way more than they bargained for. He was way more than they they bargained for, and they did not feel comfortable. God felt unapproachable. In fact, he wasn't unapproachable. For if they even touched the mountain, it told in the story there, if a sheep touched the mountain, it would die. So the people basically, if you know the story, they basically say to Moses, you know what, nice try, nice try getting us to come near, but we don't want any part of this. He is way too scary. Why don't you go talk to him, and won't you just come tell us what he says? If he says one word to us, we're goners, right? We don't want any part of this. We can't even survive his voice, much less his presence. So off goes Moses, right? Moses hikes the mountain, begins his hike. And I'm sure the people are like, well, it was good knowing Moses. 
And, uh, you know, it's it's, uh, any wonder why they kind of partied at the base. I mean, they're having like an apocalyptic end-of-the-world party at the base of the mountain because they just know it's done. God's going to finish up with Moses, and he's going to come down and finish them off. And that's kind of the feeling that they all have. But this isn't a unique feeling. So bring it now to the present day of the the readers and also to our lives. That This feeling is is, um, not unique. Being shattered and shaken in the presence of God is quite normal apart from Christ. Um, it's always fatal in the presence of God alone. Okay? It's always fatal in the presence of God alone. Without Christ, it's always fatal. You can go and read people's accounts about Scripture when they encountered God. It didn't go well for them. At the very, at the very least, they, were, they were, thought they were going to die. Job you know, repents in, in, uh, in, in dust and ashes. Samson's parents, are, they, they meet God and they realize, they, they look at each other and say, we're, we're going to die. Peter, when, he, um, when he, Jesus acknowledged his deity to him on that boat one day, remember he said, depart from me, I am a, I'm a wicked man. I, I can't be in your presence. Isaiah says, talks about himself being condemned. He's like, I'm, woe is me, I'm condemned, I'm done, uh, being in the presence of God. And then my favorite is John, in the, big, in the book of Revelation, John was called the apostle that Jesus loved. And you go read Revelation 1, you're thinking, man, it's been 30, 40 years at least, you know, since since, uh, since John has seen the resurrected Christ since Acts 1, you know, and you're thinking he's the, he's the one sitting beside of him at the, at, the, um, at, the, you know, at the Lord's Supper and all of that, and you're thinking he's going to go up and give Jesus a big hug, right? And you read Revelation 1, go read it, and you're going to find as he encounters the glorified risen Christ, John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He, he lost his breath. He couldn't stand. He just completely collapsed to the ground, right, in the presence of God. And that's always the presence of God uh, within our, when we approach him ourselves. So when we meet God, we actually, the, the deal is we see ourselves for who we really are. We're shaken to the core. We can't live in his presence. His holiness in the, in, in the presence of our unholiness is just too much for us to bear. But notice something in the text now. It says, Moses saw this sight, and it says here, I tremble with fear, right? The, the writer's actually given us this reference. We don't have this reference back in Exodus, but the writer's telling us that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And it gives us insight into kind of Moses's kind of emotional life here. He wasn't kind of like, all right, I'm going to take this mountain. I'm going to be bold. I mean, he was terrified. I mean, you can understand he was completely terrified. And, and he, what he's doing, the writer's doing is he's acknowledging, guys, I know that's what you feel like. I know you feel just like Moses. You tremble with fear in the presence of God, and you also tremble at the circumstances that you're facing, thinking God is out to get you. And so, um, so the writer says, I, I know you resonate with Moses. I know you feel afraid. You feel like you're at the bottom of Mount Sinai all over again, but that's not where you live anymore now that you're in Christ. God, again, God is still the same. Don't miss that point, and we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But in Christ, we're not at the bottom of Mount Sinai anymore. And I love that the writer, you know, in the midst of their kind of feeling this way, he doesn't smack them over the head, um, but acknowledges how they feel. He acknowledges uh, that this is where they are, and he stands with them. He tells them, in essence, that he, he knows they feel cut off. He understands a natural response initially to pain and suffering as one like this. It's as if the writer walks over to them, you know, and they're standing at the base of the mountain, and he gently, gently says to them, hey, turn around and, and, and look this way. Stop looking up the mountain and look this way. And as they turn around, he points them to the cross in the presence of Jesus, starting at verse 22. So if you look at verse 22, it says that this is, this is what you have come to now. 
Now, some people will say, well, this is just the, you know, the God of the Old Testament being angry and cantankerous, right? He's just, this is just who he was. This is his disposition. You know, Jesus was the one, you know, he was, I don't know, chasing butterflies in the field and hugging bunnies or something like that. You know, it's kind of the perspective people have of like the God of the Old Testament and God of the New. And, but, but, but what if I told you that the same God, the same God, the same God we read about in Exodus, in Exodus count here, wants to be in a relationship with you, but you can't come to him alone. Because if you come to him alone, you will be destroyed. If you come to him alone, you won't be able to handle his glory and his holiness. But he desires to be close to you. He desires to be close. He's not trying to push you away. He's trying to draw you near. And his glory, as awesome and terrifying as it may seem, is exactly the cure to what ails our souls. He's not going to hide it. He's not going to keep it back from us, right? But you can't come alone. You have to approach God in Jesus or you will be consumed you say, why? Because, again, sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. His whole command to not touch the mountain, wasn't, he wasn't being mean to them. It was being very loving. It's like, look, you can't approach me by yourself. The same God desires us to come near to him. So despite what you feel, who you are in Christ, uh, you who are in Christ have not come to Mount Sinai. God is not watching you and waiting to react in violent wrath to every sin you commit. If you're in Christ... Understand that. It's not where we are. God is not in the heavens watching you, you know, eat too much and going like, okay, that's gluttony and you're, gonna, you're going down for this one. Right? He's not watching you, you know, in the car, you know, as you get angry at the driver in front of you and maybe you give them the finger or something like that. And God's like, okay, I saw that and that finger's going to be missing in the morning, right? I mean, it, this is, when I was a new believer, this is what I thought about God. I mean, it's my perspective. I'm like, he's, I'm, I'm done for. He's going he's gonna to tear me apart, you know, for this. Um, you know, and so it, it's, it's understanding. It's not like he is sick and tired of all the sin that's out in the world. And he's going to take it out on you. Sometimes you think that, right? You maybe grew up in a home like that where dad, he was stressed at work and things were really bad. He comes home, he takes it out on you, right? And you're thinking, well, God's just so upset at the world. He's taking it out on me as his kid. That's not happening either. That's what the writer is trying to give us perspective here. You're not on Mount Sinai. God loves you in Christ. You are his bride, as the scriptures will tell us. Number two, God tells us the truth. Uh, verse 22 to 24. So the writer acknowledges, has acknowledged how, how many times we feel in pain. He understands the suffering of his people. And like Jesus in Hebrews 4, he sympathizes. He sympathizes. But he tells them that despite their feelings, they have not come to a God ready to strike them down, but rather to a God who accepts them in Christ. And so here is where he conveys truth to our hearts. Admittedly, some of the language is a little archaic, so we're going to have to look at it and explain it a little bit. But let's look at it here. Verse 22. You have, but you have come. So the beginning said you have not come. Now it says you have come to Mount Zion. It's a different mountain. To the city of living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now at first, you may think when you read that, that the writer's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. You read the language like, oh, this is, this is all talking about heaven. And actually, the language is not that at all. Do you notice the language? You, it says you have come. It's very important. Not that you will. You have. You're already here. You're already in this place, right? And that, that's, this is reality right now is what he's talking about. And so he tells them that though they are temporary residents of the city of man, okay, this is how um, Augustine back in the 4th century called this, though they're temporary residents of the city of man in the Roman Empire, right, where they are, they are current permanent residents of the city of God. And in this city of God, in this new city that they're in, um, there are walls for protection. And the city of the God, the king that is there is the living God. 
And so we need to know in our pain that we are current residents of this city. Another name for that is what's called here Mount Zion, which is a name given to the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. You may see that a few times when you read like the Psalms. Um, and so this is the place where God's presence was, the temple and all of that. And so Mount Zion is the presence of God or the city of God as a Hebrews writer will refer to it. And that's important to kind of get that distinction. The Bible is a tale of two cities. Um, starts in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation. There is the one city we find is called the city of man, the earthly city, a city based on man's efforts. You can go back to the Tower of Babel, right? Building that up is a perfect example of the city of man, building on our own achievements, uh, based on making a name for ourselves at the expense of others. But God is building a different city, a city of God, which is based on God's effort on our behalf. He's laying the foundations of that city right now with his people. And the city of God is, is a city not based on power, but on peace. Not a place of exhaustion and oppression, but a place of joy and justice. Not a place of selfishness, but a place of selflessness. That's what the city God is building. That's what he's doing with you and me and all of us now. He's building that kind of culture, that kind of city. And it's here. And it ultimately one day will take over the whole earth. And throughout church history, the people of God, in their pain, took comfort in the reality that they belonged to this city. Though they lived in the city of man, they understood they lived in the city of God ultimately. And that changed. And follow me here for a second because it's really practical. Because they understood they lived in the city of God, that changed how they treated people who lived in the city of man, right? It changed, it changed how they lived here because they understood they lived here. Does that make sense? Let me give you some, some quotes here. One I love church history. Just bear with me for a minute. I got two of them. Tertullian's one of them. This is like back in the, I think, third, third century. He said this, and he's given just commentary on Christians at the time. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. They have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Right? He's, he's given the contrast, right? The city of man were destroying their offspring. The Romans were throwing out their children to die of exposure, right? If it wasn't a male, it wasn't going to join the battle and join the forces, they'd throw out the females outside, right? So he's given the contrast between the two. So they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. In other words, promiscuity. They're, they're honoring their marriage, and you're, you get to Hebrews 13, you'll talk about this. The Romans were not. He says uh, they, are, they are in the flesh, meaning they are human beings, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet, in, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened unto life. They are sailed by the Jews as foreigners, persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. What a commentary, right? That, that, if you read church history, I'm going to give you another quote here by a guy named Rodney Stark who wrote a book on kind of how, how the gospel transformed the Roman Empire and really exploded to what we have today. And it all had to do with people who understood they lived in the, they, though they lived in the city of man, they, they were residents of the city of God, and that transformed how they treated people here. Here's, here's what Rodney Stark said in his book. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, 
Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics and fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. I mean, it was, they were the ones, if you don't understand, the plagues came through, ravished everybody. Everybody was a Roman citizen, took off running for the hills, left family, friends, kids, parents behind. Christians stayed. They stayed. They took care of them, and, they, and they, they helped them. And a lot of them died in the plague, too, because of that. But when the plague was over, guess what was left in the Roman Empire? Christians and everyone that Christians helped. And guess what happens to those who Christians helped? They said, all right, who is your God? <laughs> right? Why would you sacrifice your life for us? Why would you stay behind when my own family, friends, my, our own priests of our religions took off running, and yet you guys stayed? It transformed the entire world because of that. So despite what we may feel about God and our pain, the truth is that we have not come to Mount Zion. We have come, well, we've not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion. We have not come to the city of man, but to the city of God. And when we live for the city of God and not for the city of man, we find that the city of man is transformed right, by our, by our very presence. Uh, continue on verse 22. But you have come, it says here, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. If you've been following us in Hebrews, Hebrews has a lot to say about angels. Um, it's one of, probably one of the main books, if you want to study angels, is the book of Hebrews. And so here we learn another promise, another reality, not something for the future, but something right now, that in our life and in our pain and in our struggle, we are surrounded by angels. Remember, Hebrews 1 ta- told us about this already. Uh, he'll talk about it again in chapter 13. Uh, they've been dispatched by God to serve us and help us, especially in our suffering. But here we find them doing more than just serving. And this is, I love this part. It says uh, angels in festal gathering. The idea is that they're not serving us and they're not grumpy about it, okay? They're not like your grumpy FedEx guy who keeps delivering your Amazon boxes to your front door and like, here, I got another one for you. You know, that's at least mine. He, he, I got one every day coming to my door. But, you know, he's not like the unhappy FedEx guy. Sorry if you work for FedEx. I'm not saying all FedEx people are unhappy. But carrying boxes all day long will probably make me unhappy. Anyway, so, you know, he's, he's not, they're not unhappy. They're excited to serve. That's why it says they're in festival gather, gathering um, uh, clothing here. They are, they are all excited to serve us. They're a part of a celebration, as it were. It's, I mean, it's a great image to get that we understand behind the scenes, we cannot see our angels enjoying every moment of serving God by serving us. And it, it's, it's incredible. Because the word here for festal gathering is the word literally for a, a noisy celebration. In the Roman culture, it was the, the festivities and the parties that occurred during the Olympics. Okay, that's the word that's used here. So they're just excited. And so these angels are, are exuberant. Luke 15 tells us why they're so excited many times. Luke 15 talks about they rejoice over every single person who comes to Christ, who trans- transforms from death to life. Right When they come to Christ and they're made new and they come into a relationship with God, the angels, it's like, I don't know if a, if a siren goes off up in heaven or what happens, but they all just get excited about it, Luke 15 tells us. Um, and they're, uh, throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts, uh, you'll find uh, these angels appearing. And here's the thing. Go and study the, the Gospels and Acts and go and study where angels show up. And you know what you're going to find? They show up when there's pain. They show up when they're suffering, as like an, a, almost like an extension of God's grace to us, right? Um, think about uh, Jesus after the temptation with Satan, they show up. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they show up. They're at the ascension when the apostles are freaked out and scared to death that Jesus is leaving them. Uh, they're with Peter in prison. They're with Paul during the shipwreck. God sends them 
right? He sends them. I remember taking a trip. This was uh, Sarah and I had gotten, um, I think we were married about two or three years at the time, and we took a trip down to Ecuador, and I've told you some of this before. We went down into Ecuador and down to the jungles of the Amazon, and we're talking like deep in the jungles of Amazon. If you read the stories of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, that's the place that we went. Um, we knew the, the son of, of Nate Saint, Steve Saint, and so we went, went together and went down to, uh, down to the Amazon jungle. So we you know, flew in the Quito, we had like an eight-hour bus ride to get to the edge of the jungle inside, and then you go like on a little uh, plane that you swear you're going to die on that like only seats like, seats like four people, and you just fly off top of the jungle for 30 minutes, and you drop down on a jungle-made airstrip, and then you get in a canoe, and you canoe for four hours, and you get out of that, and you hike for three, and then you find the tribe. I mean, that's how deep... Amazon jungle is huge, by the way. But um, by the time you get, in, that's where they are, down in the middle. And I remember going there, and we were sitting there, and we were talking to one of the guys in the tribe. One of them, his name was Minkai. Minkai was of the, the Wild Donnie tribe. He was one of the men who clubbed and speared to death the missionaries that came there back in the 1950s, 60s time. So Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and these guys, Peter Fleming, if you're familiar with the story, went to, to these people to give the gospel to them. And as soon as they landed on the beach... They, they emerged from the jungle and beat them and killed them. It was a huge story. It was all over uh, American, American news stories and everything else. Minkai was one of the guys that did it. And so I'm sitting there with this guy. <laughs> it was an amazing experience. I'm talking to him um, through a translator because I can't understand what he's saying, obviously. But, uh, but we're, we're talking, and he's telling us how the, the, a couple weeks before, a group of people had been there, and they had this. Um, he's trying to explain a, a, what a, a CD player is, and this is a little while ago, so CD player, before MP3 players, um, before iPods, and so they, he, he was explaining how they were playing this thing, and they were playing this music, and it says that they played this music, well, I don't know what it was, um, but as they played this music, he said he just got completely flustered, and he's like, what is that sound? What is that sound? I've heard that sound before, and they're like, what do you mean? And he's like, I remember that sound, and he, and he, said, he said, I remember when we came out of the jungle um, and we, we attacked the missionaries who, by the way, had guns, and they didn't shoot them, right? They could have, and they didn't. And uh, he says, when we were killing them, he said, I, he said, I heard this music. And he said, I saw, a th- what he say? I saw 100 flashlights in the sky. That's how he tried to explain light. And he, what he was trying to explain as he goes through this, it was like he, it was, there was angels who literally visited during the time of which they were killing these missionaries. He witnessed and heard sound, music, and he heard lights flashing in the sky as he experienced that. God, God sent angels to them during that time of tremendous, obviously, suffering and death. It was, a, it was an incredible story to sit down and hear from him. But during pain... Even pain unto death, there are angels serving. There are angels singing. And you might think it's demons dancing around you, right, when it's suffering and pain. But God is there, and God is, uh, and these angels are excited to be there and serve. Randy Alcorn says the following. He says, one by one, occasionally a few of us at a time, will disappear from this world. Those we leave behind will grieve that their loved ones have left home. In reality, however, their believing loved ones aren't leaving home, they're going home. They'll be home before us. We'll be arrived at the party a little later, right? So we've not come to a God with angels blasting, ear-piercing trumpets, announcing your destruction. Instead, you've come to a God with angels dispatched to serve, who are super happy to do so, right? Who are having celebrations over what they are doing. Verse 23 continues, You have come to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, the spirits of the righteous made Perfect. So now we find not only are we part of the city of God with angels dispatched to serve us joyfully in our pain, but we have been placed in a long line of godly men and women who are part of the church with us. 
Do you realize, and you may not know this, but there are two kind of churches in the Bible, okay? There is the, the local church, um, like the local church of Ephesus or the local church of Philippi or the, the local church of Parkside Bible Church, right? These, these are local churches. There is also what's called the universal church, which is all, all, the, all true churches are a part of, all Bible-believing churches are a part of throughout history. And so we now, this very day, are part of a church with Paul and with Peter and with Spurgeon and all these other guys throughout church history and ladies. I mean, we, we are part of that church with them. So writer's telling us that uh, of our camaraderie with those who are gone before us. We have solidarity with them. We're part of the family with them. And look at how we're part of the family. The language is really important. We are enrolled. You see the language there? We are enrolled. Every believer throughout the centuries has simply been enrolled. You say, what, is it, what does it mean to be enrolled? Well, think about what does it mean to be enrolled, some of you uh, who are going off to college. What does it mean to be enrolled into college? What's it mean to do that? It means to have your name entered in, right? A, a spot is reserved for you. You've made it. You've got the acceptance letter. You're in. You've been enrolled. You haven't done anything. You haven't, you haven't submitted any money yet, but you're enrolled in that way. And notice it's, it's in, in this text, it says just our names are written. Isn't that fascinating? We're enrolled by our name. Nothing else has been done. Uh, or nothing's taken into account in that way. You say, why? Because our admittance into the family of God is based solely on the efforts of Jesus and not our own. That's what we rejoice in. Do you understand that? If you go to Revelation 20, you're going to find that the books are open, plural, for those who have rejected Christ, and the books are, are read. What is that? That's, that's every account, every sin they've ever committed. It's just listed. But those who are, who are believers, it says there is a name written in a book, singular. It's just a name. That's all. We don't get any you know, credit after our name. We, we don't get into heaven with anything we've ever done. We just get in with our name because of Christ not our efforts. And that's what we rejoice in. Uh, verse 23 says, you have come to God. And it says here, the, the judge of all. Now that may sound kind of strange. You're like, well, that looks like we're back at Mount Sinai again. Um, but remember that God is, is a judge always. That's never changed. And this judgment is not of what we have or have not done. Remember, just our names are in there. It's a judgment, get this, of the injustices that have been done to us. And that was really important for these guys. Remember, a lot of injustices they have faced. They lost their homes, they lost their jobs, all because of their commitment to Christ. They have been mistreated in many ways. And so I believe this is inserted here to help us in our pain. And the idea here is that God is not going to let anything or anyone slip between the cracks. Justice will be served. A price will be paid for all um, that has been done to you, either by Christ or by the people themselves. And so we have not come to a God who's going to judge us for our deeds or lack thereof, because of Jesus. Instead, we have come to a God who is going to judge and take care of the injustices that have been done to us. We have all faced a great amount of loss and pain and injustice, and God is saying, I'm here, I can hold it, I'll take care of it in time. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you hear that? We have come to Jesus. Not our coming to Jesus, or will come to Jesus. But again, something that's taken, we have come. We've already come to him. Um, he has already said back in the Gospels, Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. Or he is close and, that he, and, and, and he's present in our pain. He's not far away, he's near. And look what the author emphasizes about Jesus, his role as a mediator and his blood. You have not come to a God with a covenant that says, do good and I'll bless you. 
Obey me and I'll love you. You have come to a God who says, I bless you, now do good. I love you, now obey. I've saved you, now go do. You've not come to a God who cries out for blood, as the pagans would have understood in the Roman Empire, but a God who has bled. You've not come to a God who cries out for vengeance, like Abel's blood did. Remember, he cried out for vengeance. You have come to a God, a God who cries out for acquittal, whose blood cries out for acquittal and forgiveness. I mean, how radically different is that? You've not come to a God who remembers your sins anymore, Hebrews 7 says. You've come to a God who, ironically, remembers every deed done in, in, in his name that you do, Hebrews chapter 5. Lastly, God gives us hope. Last couple of verses here, starting at verse 25. So the writers acknowledge how we feel in our pain. He's told us the truth um, of what our vision of God should really look like and what's going on, but he doesn't end there. He actually makes it very clear that he's not arguing here for a different kind of God. The God at Mount Sinai is no different than the God of Jesus. They're the same, right? It's one God, three distinct persons, but one God. There's no distinction between the God of the Old Testament and God of the New. He is a God who, is, who, is, um, who like he did on Mount Sinai in, in shaking things, will do so again, the writer says here, in the future. And they can have hope that they will remain and stand firm. And it's not always going to be the way it is right now. The struggle will be over. The race will end. The bell will ring. The fight will be over. And so God is going to shake down this place. And because of Jesus, we'll stand. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. That time his voice shook the earth. And he's promised in the future, I will not only shake the earth, I will also shake the heavens. So the writer is saying, and this is important, you need to hear what he's saying. He's done this a few times in Hebrews, right? He's like, hey, listen up now. Make sure you're all in on this. You know, this is not universalism here. It's not everybody on the entire earth is going to be able to have this grace. You have to respond to the person and work of Christ. You can't just automatically get it, okay? Um, and so the writer is saying, look, it's not going to go well for you if you're not listening to what I'm saying. And the reason that is is because the same God at Sinai is the same God today. If you're not in Jesus, your approach to God, my friends, will be terrifying. You will be unable to stand in his presence. Um, and notice the, the language, all the, all the shaking going on here. That, that experience at Mount Sinai was real. They felt God shake the earth and shake their bones. And though we have not come to a God like that because we're in Jesus, still God is going to return and not only shake the earth, but says shake the heavens. He's going to shake everything, you know, kind of like those paint cans at Lowe's. You know, just, just, everything's just going to shake, the whole place, everything. And everything is not grounded, will fall apart and be destroyed. The big one's coming, right? <laughs> it's going to come. It's going to break the whole earth apart and the entire heavens. Everything's going to fall apart. And so God spoke the world into existence. He can speak it out. You know, all 100 thousand million galaxies like each containing at least that many stars and each galaxy 100 light years across will hear the word and shake and just a little word from god and it's done the lights will go out and he will transform this place and so the writer makes it clear that things will stand though right and all that shaking something will stand he's not obliterating the world as we get the revelation he's actually making a new one he's renewing it he's removing the curse that was upon it because of sin he's refining it restoring it. And here's the good news. Though we may feel like God is currently right now shaking us, in fact, he may be doing so, it is currently for our good and to draw us close to him. And though God is going to do some cosmic shaking of this place in the future, if you're in Christ, you will still stand. Justice will be served. 
our names will be called and we'll be seated at the table with Jesus in a new city with angels and saints who have gone before us in this massive party where there is pain no more. And so the writer says, verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom and let us offer acceptable worship, he says. So the writer tells us to be grateful for an unshakable kingdom. Do you hear that? These are, there are things in this world that will last forever. We have an unshakable kingdom. Deeds done in his name, mercy shown, and most importantly, the souls of men and women will last forever. These are things that God will retain on a new earth. This means something, guys. Just listen. I mean, moms, your investment in your children for the sake of Jesus is something that is unshakable, right? Dad, your commitment to love and provide and protect your family is something that is unshakable. Church, your, your selfless service to the poor, the marginalized, the broken is something that is unshakable, that God is recording and God is keeping. So it's all for this kind of acceptable worship. And what that looks like is going to be in chapter 13. Everything that, that acceptable worship is is going to be listed in chapter 13. And notice that this worship is of a God who is a consuming fire. You see how he ends that? Our God is a consuming fire. He's a God who will shake everything that's not grounded in him, and yet we are grounded and unshakable. We should stand in awe of him, not only worship him, but um, not only worship him all if we see just how we got this unshakable kingdom, we should respond that way. And so remember that, that God is a consuming fire. He's never changed from Mount Sinai to the cross to today. For God to be a consuming fire is to say that his glory is the very center of the universe a burning kind of flame of holiness. And we were meant to stay in that presence, but apart from Christ, we never will. We are doomed to be shaken down, judged together with the rest of humanity and found wanting if we don't stand in Christ. And we know, intuitively, we all know this. If you're honest with yourself, we know deep down that if God shakes us, we won't have anything left. But go back to the cross with me for a moment. I want you to recall the scene because something very interesting happened there. Jesus, if you remember, was was the man who god man who lived the life we couldn't live and then died to death we should have died to save us he bore our sins second Corinthians 5 21 says he he took on our sin so that we might have the righteousness of god right he took it all on and he died there right and you know what happened let me give you a couple two verses and listen see if you hear something similar to hebrews hebrews chapter 12 luke 23 says this it was now the sixth hour this is jesus hanging on the cross and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Does, does any of that sound familiar to you? What was happening on the cross? Mount Sinai was happening all over again at the cross. Why? Because Jesus literally was being shaken by God. And he didn't stand. He crumbled underneath that. He bore, because he became our sin. So God shook him, judged him, as it were, because of our sin. And he, and he, he hung there. And now, and faced the judgment of God for us, deserving, taking our sin on himself so that we could have his righteousness. He was judged that we might be blessed. He was shaken that we might stand. He was lost that we might be found. He, in essence, climbed Mount Sinai, walked into the consuming fire that was God, and was incinerated that we might climb Mount Zion and walk into the consuming fire that is God and be home. That's what Jesus accomplished. That's the tra- he took on every, all the judgment. He took it on himself. But friends, that, that's hope. 
That, helps, that gives us strength and enables us to stand firm in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain. And so our response, let us offer acceptable worship. Let us live a life that is radical for the sake of Christ. Not, not patronizing worship, not fear-filled worship, not guilt-driven worship, but joyful, reverent, eternally invested worship. Jesus is coming back. He's going to shake this place. And what will last forever, the souls of men, the word of God, the souls of men, the investment that you make for his sake and his name's sake on this place. What are you doing now in response? What kind of worship are you giving in response to the unshakable kingdom that God has given to you in Christ? We take communion, let's ask that question. Let's consider that. If you're a believer today, we have bread, juice at the front and back, and we take them in remembrance of Jesus. Remember his body and blood broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. And we give our offerings as a response. But before we do that, we'll have quiet and we can ask that question to ourselves. What does our worship look like? Now, I'm not talking about your singing. I'm not talking about your attendance. I'm talking about what kind of worship is your life representing? How are you making much of Jesus while you live in the city of man? You belong to the city of God. What kind of impact is the city of God having on the city of man through your life now? Let's pray. Father, thank you. For our time, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to, to look at these beautiful passages um, that at first God maybe uh, seem kind of um, archaic or uh, maybe not very practical, and yet, God, they are super practical. Thank you for the reality you give us, the reality we live in right now, um, that we belong to you, that because of Jesus and because of the judgment he faced and went into Mount Sinai, as it were, went into the, the, uh, the holiness of God, taking our sin and was consumed that, God, we may be forgiven, that we, God, may climb that Mount Zion, walk into your presence of holiness, and be able to stand and be able to revel and enjoy and marvel at your glory, your worth, your value, your holiness, and be able to be there, all because of Jesus. And we thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen.